guys, welcome to the CP Junkie podcast, where we bring you interviews with dentists sharing their CPD stories and journeys from around Australia. What better way to learn than to follow those who've already done it before? CPD Junkie is Australia's most comprehensive CPD, so head over to cpdjunkie.com.au and become a member for free to access the full features of the site. Greetings, CPD Junkie podcast fam. I'm your host, Lawrence Doan, and today we're joined by Dr. Peter Damon. Peter is a general dentist who has worked in Potts Point for 25 years. He's an experienced and passionate dentist who's spent his career educating other dentists and educating himself in the art and science of his profession. He's a leading Australian CEREC user and over the last decade has taught hundreds of dentists in the use of the same day restorative system. He has achieved a clinical diploma in orthodontics in 2016 and a master's in oral implantology from the ICOI. He is an expert in pain management and has special interest in sleep apnea, root therapy treatment, and aesthetic dentistry. Dr. Peter Damon, welcome to the show. Thanks, Lawrence. So I just want to say on the record that in all our preparations for my interviews, um, for it, for my preparation, I received an. Ex- I've never received an extensive history of CPD attendance quite like yours. You know, you are truly a hardcore CPD junkie, and thank you for making my job a little bit easier or harder. Yeah, no, that's okay. That's that's fantastic. It's good. It is, it is who I am, I suppose. <laughs> so, for our community, strap yourself in because this might be a big. Uh, this might be a bit big, but I'll do my best to try to find a method to the madness for you guys in the short space of time that I've got Dr. Damon on. So, tell us about your CPD or dental journey from when you graduated. Um, I guess uh, it probably started with my dad because my dad was the dentist. And um, I had, uh, I was very lucky when I was at university because I used to, I was his nurse and then I was his dental technician. So, I used to make all of his splints and do his dentures and all that kind of stuff. So, I had, uh, I had a lot of dental, uh, extra dental training um, beyond and above my degree. Um, and then uh, I, I kind of, I liked certain um, demonstrators when I was at the university. I guess the thing that I liked the most about them was the approachable ones. So I vowed that after I left, I would go back and demonstrate. So I left uni in 93, went to London and worked on the NHS, which was a nightmare. Um, I was seeing 35 patients a day. Um, so 140 patients a week and I was earning 400 pounds. So I was earning two, two pounds a patient, patient every 15 minutes, probably not the ideal first job, but I got, a, I got an enormous amount of experience. Then I came back and, um, I started, uh, teaching, um, clinical dentistry at, uh, the dental hospital. So basically third year, uh, and I was teaching just basically, you know, general clinical dentistry and pros. Um, and then I also went and taught anatomy because I loved anatomy at uni. Um, and then I think it's true of everybody where you've really just got to find your feet as a dentist. So your first five, six, seven years, you know, you're basically just learning how to, how to, how to look in the mirror, you know, and, (laughs) and be able to drill. Mm -hmm. Um, I always had, uh, high expectations of my dentistry, um, I think another thing that, that young dentists have to manage is the uh, pressure to um, have everything perfect. Um, and I think that's a really a very difficult thing for most people to manage. Like you, you have to reach a point in your career 
when you're dealing with dentistry, you realise that nothing is perfect. Um, but in the strive for perfection, you want to be able to do everything as well as you possibly can do. And I think that my love of CB, C, C, CPD was kind of driven um, because I wanted to be able to do the things that I did as best as I could. I suppose that's an easy way to do it. And what I say to people, um, and often you, help, you look at DPR and everyone's like, how do I make more money? How do I do this? How do I do that? Um, a little thing I picked up, you know, before you earn, you have to learn. You've got to stick an L in front of it. And I think that um, there was a guy at university called Tom Boland. He's retired now. And one of his lines was, look, you know, if you do good dentistry um, and you're not an idiot, you'll make money. So don't focus too much on making money. Focus more on trying to be a good dentist. And my dad was always instrumental in that too. Like he only worked three days a week. Um, so he was a, a person who, who said, look, you can work as hard as you want and you can make as much money as you want, but it won't necessarily, necessarily bring you happiness. So of course you want to earn money, but he had a great work-life balance. So I was kind of armed from the beginning with, um, you know, the philosophy of my dad, which is do everything as well as you can, but don't sweat the small stuff. And then, uh, you know, my mentors along the way, you know, helped me um, understand and do better dentistry. So for that, uh, that's probably that's probably my philosophy of CPD. Wow. Okay. So let's 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 bring it back a little bit. So you you graduated, you moved to London. Um, and then you did that for a little bit with the NHS, which is slightly big. And I find that a lot of times clinicians were mentioning that that was a good time for them to kind of explore Europe because that was the time when, you know, um, it was easy to kind of um, jump from you to the UK. Yeah, and it would have been, but I was too poor. So um, I was working in London um, once I'd paid my rent, once I'd paid my tax, and uh, once I'd have some living expenses, I actually had no money. So. I went to London thinking, yes, I'm going to be going to Europe, but in the end, I couldn't afford to do it. So, uh, and and it was an, it was it was a it was a time where it was a trial by fire. You know, you'd run out of gloves, you'd be doing surgicals, you'd have blood up to your elbows. You know, you'd you know you'd have to cut crown preps on people in in half an hour and take impressions. Like it was, in, you have to do root therapies in 15 minutes. Like it was, it's the worst type of dentistry on the planet. Um, and when I came back, I, I actually didn't like dentistry at all. But when I came back, um, I then started working with my dad and, uh, and I had the time to actually do better dentistry. So um, what, that, what then happened, obviously, is then I started to enjoy dentistry. Again. Uh, and that was something that was only my second year out. But, but, but bearing in mind, by the time I came back, so after one year on the NHS, I'd cut 60 crowns. Yeah. So most people in their first year out might do five or ten or whatever so i, I really had a, a, a like an enormous leg up with the experience um and then of course uh i just started you know trying to get into the things that that, that i loved um i suppose if i could split up um do you want me to talk about mentors and stuff yeah or, I mean, we, could, we could go into that too yeah yeah um i'm, I'm just a general dentist. um i think one of your questions was about specializing if I was going to be anything, I'd probably be an endodontist. That's the thing I like the most out of general dentistry. Um, I don't always like it. Sometimes it's impossible, but I've done thousands and thousands of root therapies. Uh, I think the thing about being a general dentist is that you can do everything um, and you get to treat people in a kind of, you know, totality. 
So we're very privileged not to specialise because we can do many different things and we can help people in many different ways. So I guess in the end I didn't specialise because I just enjoyed general dentistry too much. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've been really lucky in my career to learn from people who really knew their stuff. Um, and like if I, if I was going to split it up for you, um, there's a guy called Cliff Ruddle. I don't even know if he's alive anymore, but um, he's the guy who invented ProTaper. Right. And I'd done a lot of root therapy, um, but he was the first guy to make me really understand what you were doing when you were doing root therapy, why you had to open the canals up to 25, you know, what you're, what actually killed the bugs, what, what was going on. Um, there's an endodontist in town called Sid Bader in Sydney, and he's a really brilliant endodontist. And I went and hung out with him for a day or two and just watched him do root therapy. That's another thing too. I mean, if I could say something to the listeners, in terms of mentorship, if you have people who are willing to teach you and you have people um, that, that don't mind you hanging around, going to watch people who are really good at something and just hanging around and watching them do it is incredibly, uh, it's, it's instrumental and aspirational. You know, you go, well, you know, they can do it. I'm going to try and do it like that. So you can, you can just pick up not only going to courses, but just actually observing how people do things. When I was start, uh, learning to play the guitar, which I can't play, by the way, because I gave up, but um, my guitar teacher said something to me, which is, which is true, I think, of every uh, profession and um, every approach to, to uh, anything that you're going to learn. He said, when you start playing the guitar, you're like a footballer. You know, you've got your hand, you're gripping the guitar, you're playing it like this, you, you know, you're really like this. He said, but, you know, if you look at masters, they're ballerinas, they're not footballers. So... I think the progression for everybody in anything that they choose to do is to go from being a master to a ballerina. You see brilliant oral surgeons. They don't cut enormous flaps. They don't do this. They don't do that. They just get in there and they just do what they've got to do and take the teeth out in 10 minutes or whatever it is. You know, you see great endodontists, little axis cavities, you know, conservative, you know, just, but they, but they have the feel. So I think in dentistry, um, most of the time, uh, as you get more and more and more experience, you become more of a ballerina in, in the things that you do. Mm-hmm. If that can, I mean, that's slightly strange, but that's what I would say. So, um, so Endo was um, Cliff Ruddle. Um, I then uh, had a mate, George Connell, who works in Macquarie Street. I went to uni with him. He was doing a lot of implants, and um, this was kind of early two thousands. So I'd been a dentist for almost ten years then, and uh, and then he said, "Oh, he said, I'll, I'll come and." Um, we'll do some. So he came to my practice. He did implants on my patients while I nursed for him. Then I did implants on my patients while he nursed for me. But this is a mate of mine, right? Who had a lot of experience. Then I realized that I didn't know enough. Um, And I went down to uh, Melbourne and there was a ITI long surgical course run by Stephen Chen. Mm -hmm. And it was just amazing. So basically it was four or five weekends and it was about 2004, 2005, I think. And that really taught me implant dentistry. So I'm not a brilliant implant dentist, you know, I haven't put thousands in, you know, but I mean, I probably do one a week, you know, I probably put four or 500 implants in. Mm-hmm. And, but the, but the principles that he taught me when I went down there uh, still hold true today. So what I found interesting was that the course was so well put together and with, with no ego and Stephen's a brilliant um, a periodontist, but 
it was literally something which every time I went to an implant conference, they would just back up and, uh, and, and uh, agree with everything that he'd taught us. And that happened for years. Um, then um, he put me on to Vincent Liu. Vincent Liu is a periodontist in Bonner Junction and Vincent became a good friend. And so Vincent does all my really tricky cases, but Vincent was my surgical mentor and he's amazing. Uh, and once again, that's a, a, another example of when you find people who are willing to teach you and don't mind you hanging around, go and hang around their place, right? And, um, and you learn a lot. So Vincent taught me an, an enormous amount about, um, about implant surgery. Um, with the, the diploma in uh, ortho, um, one of my best mates, a guy called Steve Cave, he's, a, he's an orthodontist up in Newcastle. And uh, I, I didn't know anything about ortho. It was the one major gap in my learning. Um, and I realised that, that uh, even if I didn't do it, um, I would need to know something about it because I never referred anyone off for ortho. And obviously people were doing aligners. Mm -hmm. And I thought, um, what, you know, I've really got to go and learn something. And, and, and I did, I did uh, Smile Fast, um, Jeff Hall's course. Yes. You know, and the first time you ever brace somebody up, you go, look at me, I'm an orthodontist. I'm putting brackets on people's teeth. It's so exciting. Um, and then, of course, you don't realise you don't know that much. And then I did Derek Mahoney's course and then I worked for Derek. So basically, Derek, I was a bracket monkey for Derek for, um, for three years. Um, and that's just an, and for nothing, right? So, so I think that, um, you know, that, that part of that journey is, once again, you can learn how to do something, but until you're actually doing it, until you're actually getting the runs on the board, you're not going to necessarily, uh, you're not going to get a lot better. You physically have to do it. Um, and I think that also for me, you know, ortho was a complete game changer. Um, the simple things that it teaches you about development, um, breathing, um, canine impaction, uh, what to do with kids, you know, it's just, uh, it's, it's an awesome thing. Not necessarily just straightening teeth or giving people nice smiles, but all the other aspects of ortho are fantastic. And um, it's sometimes it's very difficult to get your hands in those little mouths and put those brackets on and they break. And like, it's not an easy, necessarily easy thing to do ortho, but mm -hmm. it is something that brings you a lot of satisfaction um, professionally. Right. Um, then what did I do? Uh, pros. So Tony Rotondo, um, who I think is an absolute genius and one of the nicest people on the planet. He, uh, he runs a anterior composite course. So I would say to anybody on the planet who wanted to learn about anterior composite, go and learn from the best guy on the planet, which is him. It's about, I don't know, four or 5,000, 6,000 bucks or something. It's three days. It's in Brisbane. He runs it about two or three times a year. Um, I'd always had trouble with composite veneers. I'd always had trouble with anterior composites. I never really felt that I was getting a nice result. So if you go and learn from him, you learn two things. You learn about tooth shape and tooth form and characterization. And you also learn how to, you know, the technique of, of layering the composite. And, uh, you know, I'd always looked on, um, not ripe, what was the other one that used to be up? You know, there's always those, always those, um, the Italians, uh, style Italiano, you know. Yeah. There's always there's always the videos of people doing the composites and it's all very well to watch the video of someone doing the composite and layering it. But when you're actually there um, and you learn about tooth shape, it's fantastic. So that kind of changed my life. There's a guy called Urs Brodbeck, who's a prosthodontist from, um, uh, where's he? He's in Switzerland, in Zurich. Mm -hmm. 
And um, he used to come down and do a lot of courses for uh, Ivoclar. I did a few of his courses, mainly on um, on uh, porcelain veneers and stuff. Um, so he was fantastic for, for, for pros. Um, there's a guy called Marius Steigman. So I, I've learned a little bit about soft tissue surgery, but it's too finicky for me. I don't have the patience for it. Um, and I've seen, obviously, other people's massive failures with soft tissue surgery. So I'd rather they failed rather than me. I'm happy not to do it. Um, but Marius Steigman said one of the greatest lines that anyone's ever said to me. He said, it's not what you don't know. It's what you know that isn't so. So basically, to put that simply, is that mm. the people who are teaching you, if they don't know what's real or if they are teaching you the wrong thing, then you will believe what they say is true and then you will repeat their mistakes. Classic uh, moment in a course was um, we had a, uh, there was a tri-implants course in Manly and Marius was teaching this. And Marius said, all right, he said, who can tie a suture? You know, and everyone's like, oh. well, you know, let me at it. And they were all walking up to tie the suture, you know, in front of him. Wrong, 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 wrong. No one got it right. Because even though we could tie a knot, none of us were actually tying the suture the correct way. So, and that brings, brings me back to what Marius was saying. He said, if the people who are teaching you didn't teach you the right way because they didn't know, you'll never learn. Shh, hit pause. Did our guests just mention a course that helped them level up? Quick, log on to our website, cpdjunkie.com.au to find out the next available date for that course so you can start leveling up your dentistry today. I'll wait here. Okay, done? Great. Now let's get on with the episode. So, but I don't do any soft tissue surgery, but that brings me to another point. I think that it's incumbent upon general dentists to learn as much as they can about every aspect of dentistry. Because even if you don't do it, you'll be able to do two things. You'll be able to recognize what's going on. So you'll be able to help the patient. And then you'll also be able to um, refer to the right person. So when people don't know anything about something, they ignore it in their practice. I didn't know anything about ortho. I never sent anyone to an orthodontist. It's like, doesn't exist. It's not a problem. And um, no one ever died of crooked teeth, so, you know, it doesn't really matter. But, you know, if you can recognise what's going on in a patient's mouth, um, first, you can recognise it. Second, you can steer them in the right direction. And then you, have, you don't have an ego problem with letting the patient go or getting someone else to do the work. Um, that brings me to another point. Uh, I think that uh, you can't do everything. You can't be a genius at every aspect of dentistry. I think to, to, to some people are very good at many things, um, but most people are good at a few things. And I think that uh, there's no shame in referring people off to colleagues who do the job better than you do. Because in the end, we're really uh, responsible for the patient. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not necessarily responsible for making the money out of the patient, but you're really responsible for the patient's well-being. That old Hippocratic oath, you know, first do no harm. Uh, and I've always been lucky because I've always respected other people's skill. I've always been able to recognise when other people do things better than me and there's many people who do. 
Um, and then I go, all right, look, you know, I don't do that. I know what you need. Go and see that person over there and they'll help you out. And I think that's kind of the more you learn. So it's like that old line, you know, when you, when you, when you graduate, you know, you know a lot, yeah. but you don't have the clinical skill, um, but you think you're great. Right. And then yeah. after about five or six or seven years, you go, Oh shit, I'm not as good as I thought I was. So either you start seeing your own failures or you realize that actually it's far more complex. And then you realize the more, you know, the less, you know, and so you have this kind of inverse proportional thing where the longer you get down through your career, you go, wow, there's a, there's a lot to learn. Mm. I'm uh, going to unpack that. There's, there's a lot to unpack here. Yeah. So like, sorry, I just talked solidly. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. I mean, like, you, so you, you said you came out and you had an interest in in, in root canal. Is that belief? Yeah. Is yeah. that right? And yeah. you were contemplating specializing at one point, but then you realized, like, actually, I prefer being a general dentist. Yeah. Were you preparing for it, like doing primaries and all of that, or was there other things on the table? No, look, I I, I um I thought of it. You know, I had mates who went and did primaries, um, and I always thought because I was I was kind of academic. You know, um, I thought, oh, yeah, I could do my primaries. But then I never got around to doing it. You know, it was one of those things that I thought I'll do next year, I'll do next year, I'll do next year. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I never did it. And I, I think really the thought, I, I, try, I started an MBA, I only managed two or three subjects before I had the total shits for that. <laughs> so I think also what happened with me really was that having been at uni and ha it being so intense, I actually just couldn't really study again in that form. Yeah. And I think maybe that's why I didn't specialize, but you know, in the end I was also having too much fun being a dentist. Yeah. So, cause I mean, I asked that because as I was going to ask you at some point was like people contemplate about, you know, specializing, being a super GP or opening up their practice, you know, yeah. they reached at that point in their career, maybe four to five years out and they're wondering what, what should I do? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Look, I was always lucky because I'm a dad, right? He was a good mentor. I, I, I joined his practice in 94, you know, and um, I bought half of it in 97. So by 97, I'd been out by four years and I bought half a practice. I think um, there are many traps in, in, in buying a practice. Um, obviously, it's hellishly expensive uh, and there's a lot of pressure. So... I think that everybody in the end, um, not everybody, that's incorrect. Some people like to be employed and some people like to be the boss. I think that the issue with, with running a practice is that you have to put every cap on and obviously, you know, staff management and patient management are, are paramount. Um, and I think that uh, it's getting more difficult as time goes by. So, you know, the cost of running a practice is more expensive. The cost of the equipment is more expensive. Um, and it's uh, the thing that's always bothered me about um, being massively in debt as a dentist is that you have to sell a lot of dentistry. Mm -hmm. And I think selling a lot of dentistry and having to sell a lot of dentistry to service your debt is problematic from an ethical point of view. I was always kind of lucky that, you know, I joined dad's practice and, you know, I worked hard and, and I had enough money to buy half the practice. And then progressively we bought a Cerec machine and we got a cone beam and we got this and we got that. So for me, it wasn't all at once. Um, 
And uh, I think, you know, if you're five or six years out and you're wondering what to do with your career, I think you've got to work out what do you enjoy. So um, if you enjoy, you know, dealing with the staff and you enjoy patience and you like people and you've got an idea about finances, then there's nothing wrong with, you know, starting a practice or joining a practice or buying into a practice. I think if you are overwhelmed by the clinical dentistry, um, then you shouldn't start a practice. You should basically, you know, just keep plugging away. In terms of CPD or in terms of what you want to chase, the great thing about dentistry is it's very broad. So if you want to be, if you want to do ortho, you can do ortho. You know, my mate Steve in Newcastle, he couldn't stand blood. So he specialised within two or three years of coming out and he became an orthodontist, so he never had to take out another tooth. Um, I know people who just love surgery, so that's all they do. So, you know, you, you, it's, it's different for everybody. Mm-hmm. You've got to find the thing you like about your career. And the one thing that I've got to say is it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. Mm-hmm. Dentistry is a long, hard job. It's thankless, mostly. It's it's very difficult, right? It's difficult. It's difficult on your body. It's difficult on your emotions. It's difficult on your eyes. It's difficult on on everything. Mm-hmm. And and we're all our own worst enemy, right? And so it's it, you know, it's very important as a dentist to be able to enjoy it, to be able to have time off. Um, it's very important to have something else to do as well. I was, I was like sailing and, you know, racing cars and, you know, shit, hanging out with my wife and all that kind of stuff. So, um, <laughs> the, the, the other, the other, the other great driver of, of, of depression is to be stuck in the box. So my other piece of advice for people would be always make sure that dentistry isn't the only thing you've got in life, mm-hmm. because if that's the case, then you, ne- then you never give yourself a break. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, that's, that, that's the kind of, you know, in a nutshell, how I would, so, so right now I work three to three and a half days a week and people say to me, well, you could make more money if you work five. I said, yeah, I could, but I don't want to, you know, everybody needs money. I haven't paid off the house, you know, it doesn't really matter, but in the end I want to live my life. So if you want to travel, travel as much as you can, you know, one day you get married, you have kids, you, you know, you, you're kind of stuck. Um, <laughs> But, and then, and then also realize too, that, that, um, we've been, you know, we all have been given an amazing gift, right? The gift is to, it, the gift is to help people. Um, and every day, especially during the lockdown, you know, every day, right through the last couple of years, I was very thankful to have a job where I could go and, and, and do something which was helping people. I could literally go to work and fix people's problems. I wasn't stuck at home on zoom. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't rudderless. So I think that the other great, I mean, you know, while it's a difficult profession, it's a, it's a fantastic rewarding pro- profession. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's kind of what I suppose what drives me. Hmm. Would you say that, um, cause you're talking about in terms of practice ownership, how you, if you didn't understand finances very well, is that why you signed up for the MBA at one point? Yeah, kind of. Um, there's a thing about education which um, always, which which I love. I love learning stuff, but it really frustrates me when people just trundle out the same old shit, right? So 
what happened with the MBA was that I did the first subject was marketing, right? Which I loved. Oh, that was fantastic. The second subject was strategic human resource management, which is HR. I did half of it and I quit. HR wasn't for me. So, um, and I don't necessarily like learning stuff for the sake of learning stuff. I've learned too much stuff to have to rote learn and regurgitate something. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I started the MBA thinking, oh, this would be good, you know, I'll learn about more business management and stuff like that. And I realised that business management wasn't really for me. So when mm-hmm. I say, look, I run a very small practice, it's just me and the nurse, right? But when I worked with my dad, there was a receptionist and we each had our own nurse. And it was very lean. So... I'm not great with business, but I'm good at running an efficient dental practice because I don't spend money where it's not necessary. I'm efficient at what I do. I'm fast and, uh, and I, can, I can have a, a, a big output so I can make money. Um, but um, you have to be very careful when you're running a dental practice to lose, you don't lose control of your costs. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's simple. Don't buy too much equipment that you can't afford. Don't have a lease, which is too expensive. Don't employ too many people, right? Because the bigger it becomes, the greater pressure you're under to support everything. Mm. And so what I really learned from my thirty, almost 30 years of being a dentist is, you know, work hard. Everyone has to work hard. Have, have, have one or two staff members that work as hard as you. Everybody pitches in. The job isn't done until it's done. It's not a matter of, oh, well, I don't do that. That's not in my job description. I mean, you know, I'll go and scrub the instruments if I have to. I'll go and take take the payment from the patient. You know, I'll answer the phone, you know, something on the floor, I'll pick up the broom. So I think, you know, if you look at, if you look at practices, bigger practices I've worked in. So I worked in NDC and Dubbo um, when I had restraints. So but we sold our practice to... Dental Corp, and then Booper bought uh, the practice, and then we uh, they moved the practice, and um, I didn't work for them. So, but then I went and worked. Anthony Benedetto's a lovely guy in Gosford. He gave me a job, and I flew to Dubbo, um, and I worked in a big practice. So there was kind of four dentists, and I don't know six or seven nurses, and three mm-hmm. front desk staff. And what I kind of learned was it doesn't matter. It's just an economy of scale. So it was a bigger place. Um, it had slightly larger turnover. Um, but, um, you know, you still, people, everyone pitches in and, and, and the practice culture is very important. Mm-hmm. You know, so everybody's got to be, you're only there for the patient, if I can mm-hmm. say that. You really, the reason you're there, the reason you're sitting down, the reason you're, you're doing anything is to actually help the person who's sitting in the chair. The, per- the, the patient is always the most important person in the room. I think, um, you know, ego, you know, dentists have ego um, and, and sometimes nurses don't get along and sometimes there's arguments between staff. You've really got to try and control the emotion in any practice because that's the thing which will derail the practice, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, uh, and it was great. It was interesting. And I, I like, so funny story. I worked from 94 to 2018 mm-hmm. sitting in the same chair. Yeah. 
right? Um, so for 24 years in the same room. And I stare out my window. I've got a great place in Potts Point. And I look right out over the fountain. I've got these enormous windows. It's a 1914 building. I've got 15-foot ceilings. It's a fantastic spot. It's a beautiful wow. surgery. But I used to sit there occasionally thinking, is this it for me? Am I done? Am I never going to go anywhere else? And then, of course, you know, practice moved, had my restraint. I got to work in my mate Kurt Dean's practice. He's got a great practice in Maroubra. I got to work in Maria Avis's practice because they're both mates of mine and they basically said, look, you can rent a chair office. And so, um, and what I discovered is, is that good practices are, 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 all have a common theme. They care about the patients and everyone gets on. And it doesn't matter how big it was. And I was lucky to work, you know, that they really looked after me. And so then I came back to Potts Point and I kind of did a little bit of a reno. And, uh, and it's great because now I sit there and I stare out the window and I think, this is it for me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have to go anywhere anymore. I've just done it all. Yeah. Uh, and I enjoy it. You know, that's the other thing too. So um, I think if you're lucky, if you're really lucky in life, you get to do, you get to like what you do. What well, they say, you like what you do, you never work another day in your life. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say that about dentistry because it's a, like I said, difficult. <laughs> but um, yeah, if you like what you do and you don't work too hard and you enjoy it, you don't ever go to work with that sinking feeling. You don't go. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. And I think there's a few interesting points. I mean, some people would say that you're alluding to, you know, all the HR, all that management stuff, if you're not great at it. Some people would say, oh, just palm it off to someone else to do it. And then you can focus on the clinician um, and still be part of running the business. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think so. I think um, there has to be one. Look, because I always work with my dad, I had, uh, we're a family unit. Yeah. We'd have our strife. <laughs> there was one moment we were having an argument in the, in the, um, in the compressor room. And when the compressor was, we'd be shouting at each other. <laughs> and then the compressor went down. And then we, we'd like whispering. And then the compressor went, um, <laughs> you know, you're never going to get through any associateship or any partnership or any, anything without strife. Yeah. But, if you can trust the person or the trust the people around you, and you know that they're going to have your best interest in heart like you have their best interest in heart, and that's not, that, that's not always the case, but it was the case with me, then, um, you know, you can palm stuff off. My dad wasn't very good at, um, at uh, manage, managing. No, well, no, he was good at, you know, he's an old-style dentist, right? So... You know, he's the king of the castle and uh, he used to just like to come to work, do his work, earn his money and go home. I, I did more of the, um, you know, managing the front desk person and all that kind of stuff. But I had a brilliant front desk lady, Fran, and, uh, and everybody loved Fran. You know, it was like Fran Dental. It wasn't uh, Damon Dental. It was Fran Dental. And Fran got on with everybody. So, her, you know, and she was really good with ordering stuff too. So if you get a really good front desk person, um, they will, you can delegate, but you can't delegate to the wrong person. Mm -hmm. um, and you have to pay attention to what's going on if you can't delegate to the wrong person because you can lose a lot of money. You can be ordering shit, which is double the price that you need to pay. You need, you need to have somebody who goes, I understand, despite the fact that you have a good turnover, that you don't want to waste money. Um, I don't have time... I've never had time in my life to look over the monthly figures or to really give too much, you know, to, 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 to care too much 
about, um, you know, saving money on my phone line or finding the best bargain on composite or whatever. Mm. Um, even though it's all can be important, but it's almost to me like penny, penny pinching pound foolish. So generally I make sure that I'm not ordering the most expensive stuff. I don't, every month go through my list and go, well, I can get that cheaper. I can get that cheaper. I can get that cheaper because that's not worth my time. Mm -hmm. You know, you might say, you might save yourself a thousand bucks in the month, but you might spend three hours a week going through and, you know, fine tuning every aspect of your, of, of your practice management. For some people, that's what they love to do. That's cool. That's their gig. It was never my gig. Um, but you know, my nurse does the ordering now and she's great. She knows exactly what to order because we use it. She only orders what we need and she is right across all the, com all the companies and she has good relationships with people and she makes sure that we get, you know, the, the good stuff. So that's kind of, you know, she does that job. Mm -hmm. so, so, so delegate to the right people and, and you'll have an easy life, I suppose. Fair enough. So, I mean, some people would say seeking financial advice would be something that, you know, people would be interested in as well, especially even on earlier on in your career as well. Would you say that would be something that's important or? Yeah, I think um, I was I was just lucky because I, uh, yeah, the best financial advice my father gave me, right, was be able to service your debt. So don't borrow too much money and don't be under too much pressure. If you think about dentistry, you know, you go to work, you know, you earn more money than most people most of the time, which is fine. And it's never how much you earn, it's always how much you spend, right? Um, if you can, you know, own the premises that you're practicing out of because then you won't have to worry about people screwing you on the lease or whatever. My dad owns my premises, but you know, it's in the family. Um, in terms of, uh, in terms of finance, you know, find yourself a good accountant, right? Not a shonk. Find someone who knows something. Um, and then that's pretty much it. You know, you earn your money, you make your choices, and try not to uh, have habits that um, cost too much money. You know, like in car racing is a stupid habit, but at least I did that before I got married. You know, <laughs> then I got married and bought real estate and that was a stupid habit because that's very expensive. <laughs> and that's it, really. You know, that's what I said. Actually, if I go back to my original discussion before, I remember I said it was a marathon, not a sprint. Correct. So if you think of your career, so I've been a dentist for 28 years. Some people have far more wealth than me. Um, some people have far more stuff than me, uh, but it doesn't bother me really. I'm happy. So I guess finance is what you make of it. You know, if you want to go out and buy a fancy expensive car, go do it. Right. That's the other thing too, is, is you got to recognize that, um, if you want something, just go get it provided you've got the other bases covered, you know, you've got a house, which you can pay the mortgage on tick kids are at school tick, you know? Um, got food on the table? Okay. Go on a holiday or two a year and enjoy yourself? Yeah. That's what life's about. Because in the end, you know, you're going to keep working and working and working, God, God willing, you know, touch wood. Um, my dad worked till he was 74. That's not everybody's wow. cup of tea, right? Um, but he enjoyed it. 
and he had me, you know, and I was doing all the, all the difficult stuff towards the end. So uh, where do I see myself? I'm 50. Um, I'm probably going to work for another 20 years, but I'm going to work at my own pace mm-hmm. because, because I only do three days a week. Um, I'm not going to burn myself out. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I want to come back to your CPD journey as well. A little bit yeah, now. Sure. So like you were thinking about root canal. So you, you really focused in on that. And then that's when implants were kind of coming about because um, yep. there would probably be some teeth that you probably couldn't save and yep. that you had to take them out and you had to replace them, right? Sure, sure. Um, and implant was definitely becoming more of a thing um, yep. that was a reliable, you know, evidence-based and you could go around it. And then yep. was there a reason why you decided, you know, the ITI was the, the that was the one that you wanted to go into? Was that because your colleague who you were kind of learning and bouncing off from was suggesting it? How are you kind of deciding where you're going to pick? At the time, at the time, um, uh, it was, you know, ITI was Straumann, right? So when I started putting in um, Straumann implants and I don't know who suggested it to me and the course doesn't exist anymore, but... Um, they do their clinical diploma of implantology at uh, Sydney Uni, I think, um, which is which is more didactic and uh, and and I think it's um, you know it's like being back at uni. So what I really wanted was a hands-on course. So sorry, I should go back. There's two types of CPD. There's the type of CPD where you get the certificate and you listen to somebody talk a lot. The other type of CPD which I firmly believe in is hands-on. So when I taught CEREC for five years, I taught the hands-on component. What dentists want to do is they want to know how to do it, but they also want to be able to do it. And they also want to be steered into, you know, that's right, that's wrong. This is how you, this is how you hold it. This is what you're doing. So the reason that I chose, um, the reason I choose any course is usually because it's hands-on. So I did a, um, uh, an implant course on on human cadaver heads, which were flown in from the States, taught by Peter Securis. And that was fantastic because it was hands-on. You're working on a dead human, but you're literally drilling in all that kind of stuff. So when you start with any course, especially implants, it's terrifying because you have to cut people open and drill into their bone. So you need to learn why you should be doing things. You need to learn the right cases. You need to learn what you should be looking for and you need to be you need to have a base amount of knowledge before you raise a flap and stick an implant in. The further you get into implantology, the base knowledge is always there, but then your skill goes up, and so you can then do things which are uh, more straightforward, more routine. I'm not saying that every time I raise a flap, it's easy. It never is, and you can never get lulled. You can get lulled into a false sense of security. Um, with with uh, and so that's why I did the ITI course. So it was hands on, um, and then it was really it really set me up. So I did really well until I switched to Noble and put in Noble Actives and had a lot of failures. And I thought I was a terrible dentist and I thought I couldn't do implantology. Then I changed again, and I, I went back to Strauman and um, and uh, and try, and I haven't had a failure. So that's another thing too. If ever something happens to you in your career that makes you think you're bloody hopeless at it. Um, you know, uh, 
failure is failure is is a very good thing because it'll either teach you that what you're doing you need more knowledge and you need more skill mm-hmm. or it'll teach you that what you're using isn't working and then you need to adjust so one of the iti biennial conferences i went to there was a french oral surgeon called frank renault and he put in implants and and he was a very funny guy and he said uh, he's a helicopter pilot he said i bought myself a russian helicopter i was flying it and i crashed my helicopter and i realized you know you need a checklist he said the problem with dentists right because pilots have a checklist you know they sit there and they go okay click, 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 click. and he was one of the first guys to come up with that iti sac system which is you know um red amber green the assessment do i ever use that never i don't do it right what did i learn from that i learned from the fact that in your brain you need a checklist you need to be able to especially with implantology right what's the checklist is the patient healthy enough to have an implant do they have any gum disease are they a smoker is there enough bone do you know what type of implant you're going to stick in and do you know where you're going to stick in it and what pros are you going to stick on top so when you start doing implants, you don't have a checklist in your brain. But now, obviously, every time I do it, I'm going, okay, right, I've got a cone beam, best thing on the planet. Take a cone beam. Is there any infection in the site? How long ago was the tooth taken out? What does the bone look like? I don't go down to the level of, is it type one, two, three, or four bone? I don't do that. I just look at it and I think, okay, how do I feel about it? Um, implants nowadays pretty much integrate in everybody. So the old days, it, they, it was it was more precise. You know, you had to work out what type of bone it was and all the surgery and this kind of stuff. But and then you can learn different implant techniques. You know, Tom Giblin's got a great one where you don't use water, but you do a very slow osteotomy. So the drill's only going at 50 revs. So you never overheat the bone, but as the drill goes at 50 revs, it pulls all of the bone out of the osteotomy site, which you can then use around the implant. So it's native bone. So. Mm-hmm. One great thing about learning from different people is you learn different techniques and you come across things which uh, which go wow they really they kind of change your life and yeah. uh, and and you use them and you use them every day. You don't always learn that from CPD. You won't always get that from somebody's course, but occasionally you do and you go <laughs> great. If you like this episode, drop a comment below on your favorite part or leave a review. Don't forget to share it with your friends and we'll see you in the next episode of CP Junkie Podcast.